0: We pray you will be blessed by today's message. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter number 5. I was thinking about what Dale said about Alabama football. And I thought the Super Bowl was referred to as nothing more than an Alabama football reunion. So, because that's what it seems like all of them announce when they get on there from the University of Alabama. So, you can watch the Alabama reunion show instead of the Super Bowl. Matthew chapter number five. Would you pray with me? Grant us grace, O God, to hear from you today. That the cobwebs of the prior week would be removed and that Lord, we could hear afresh your word, that we may see it through new eyes And that, Lord, we would have understanding hearts to answer its call to each of us today. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I find most challenging about the Gospels is trying to determine how they match up. Simply put, there are multiple occasions where one gospel writer has a different chronology or a different recollection of the actual dialogue than another. Some gospel writers include things that others do not, and even when they all include the same thing, some of the narrative may be slightly different. Some people may use such divergences as proof in the inauthenticity of the Gospels. But I think that is a bit of a stretch. We must remember that we approach these texts 2,000 years removed, both historically and culturally, from their first recording, and our guides to to authenticity do not always match those of antiquity. All of these issues spring to mind This morning, as I look at the text here in Matthew chapter number 5 and recall the similarities and notable differences it has with its sister text in Luke 6. Matthew depicts this scene in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 as the Sermon on the Mount, while for Luke, it is the Sermon on the Plain. Mounts and plains are different things. Matthew has it as the first recorded sermon by Jesus while Luke's first recorded sermon is much prior to this event here on the mount or plain. Luke 4, excuse me, Luke recounts four beatitudes and includes some woes uttered by Jesus while Matthew lays out nine beatitudes, nine blesseds. Why the difference? Well, I believe it may be audience-related. Luke's gospel, as we know, is written to a primarily Gentile audience, while Matthew's gospel is written to a primarily Jewish audience. Matthew's Jewish audience was one facing intense grief, as his narrative is written, many scholars believe, in the first decade after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70 certainly a matter of unimaginable loss and sorrow. Now, you may be thinking that's all well and good, Mark, but what does that have to do with the time that Jesus is speaking here on the Mount? It matters, beloved, because the audiences share similar circumstances. The Jewish community of Jesus' day still had Jerusalem and the temple, but their losses were no less than those of 40 years later. Those gathered to hear from Jesus on the mount that day were suffering communal grief at the dictatorial hands of Rome, that hated pagan nation, and by the greed and wanton extravagances of their own Jewish rulers. Scholars believe that in excess of 90% of the Jews living in Judea during Jesus' day were poor to the point of destitution. Approximately 40% of their meager incomes went to pay both Roman and temple taxes. Indebtedness was high, defaults were common, and most Jewish debt was held by the priests, who were unjust in their terms and cheap in their mercy. Such poverty and oppression manifested itself in high rates of crime, such as Jesus speaks of as he tells about the road to Jericho. Likewise, Roman oppression and brutality is such that some psychiatrist will point to some of the illnesses that Jesus heals throughout his ministry as stemming from psychiatric responses to brutal oppression, having documented such occurrences in other societies. So here we have a proud nation who declares themselves to be to worship the only true God, who are the race from whence they assert the entire world sprang forth, and now here they are abused by godless pagans and their own God's priest. It now makes perfect sense why these are the first words from Jesus to Matthew's Jewish audience, and why Matthew provides a fuller account of the Beatitudes than Luke. For here we have Jesus showing essential pastoral concern for a community whose hearts are breaking from the losses that are daily compounding in their souls. Jesus' concern does a couple of things. It first enfranchises his hearers' losses. He says, I recognize that you are suffering and hurting. I recognize that you feel abandoned and rejected by God. I've come to tell you that this is not the case. Secondly, Jesus enables his hearers to begin to recondition their brains so as to learn the necessary skills they need to adequately maneuver life while living in such loss. In other words, Jesus seeks to help them rewire their thinking. Such processing seems oxymoronic, like the word humble brag, which means to be self deprecating about something, but to do so in such a way as to draw attention to it because you are proud of it. Much of social media is little more than humble brags. Yet what Jesus is doing here is not comparable to humble brags. It's instilling hope and purpose in the lives of his hearers and Matthew's future readers. He starts each beatitude by declaring the recipient, whether they are mourning or poor in spirit, or a peacemaker, to be blessed. Blessings in this society were not self-generating. Blessings were only bestowed by God, and things such as wealth, prosperity, and children were considered markers that not only God had blessed you, but that He was with you. Hence why Job felt cursed when he lost all that he had that marked him as blessed. Likewise, a group that had lost as much as the average Jewish listener in Jesus' day had would only be barely functioning, I suspect, in a state of grief that had every possible emotion attached to it, including that of being exhausted by grief. Thus Jesus says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here is a people who feel forgotten by God who are emotionally and spiritually exhausted, who have nothing left to give. And Jesus says, not only are you blessed, but you will receive the kingdom of heaven. You will be inheritors of all that God has. You are not forgotten. You are inherited. Your future is tended to. Beloved, do we declare that to the poor in spirit today? Do we declare it to people whose souls are weighted down and they believe them spells to be spiritually empty and say to them, no, you are blessed? You are blessed. God remembers you. He is nearby. Or do we, rather, just suck what little bit of spirit they have left in them out? Let me remind each of us that we will... and that we will return to again to this later on, that we are commanded both individually and corporately to exhibit the same pastoral care and concern to the world beyond these doors as Jesus does in the text. We are commanded to do it for those who are like us and to those who are nothing like us. We are commanded to do it to those who feel spiritually abandoned and lost. And Jesus, Indeed, Jesus tells us in verse 7, "'Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy.'" Often we think of mercy as salvific grace, but the word used here is different. It is not pardoning for sin, but relief from pain, misery, and distress. Are not these things that Jesus' oppressed hearers were experiencing? Are these not the things that Matthew's first readers were experiencing as they had been driven from their homes, lost their religious and cultural center, and treated as pariahs across the Roman world for the audacity that they had shown in thinking they could overthrow the Roman government? Are these not the things that people driving by our church right now out there on Church Street or Alamance Road are feeling as they experience the pain of being ostracized by their families for any number of decisions they have made, the misery of not knowing how they will afford next month's rent, and the distress of not being able to provide for their children. The church's failure to be merciful, and I should note in many cases, has been unmerciful to so many, I believe is why so much of the world turns a deaf ear to us today. Beloved, let us remember our own griefs and losses and seek to be abundantly merciful as we minister to those who are poor in spirit and in need of great mercy. A people experiencing such grief, such loss, Such pain and sorrow one would believe would be perfectly in their rights to lash out, to yell, and to scream. Back in October, Eliza offered to take me to what's referred to as a panic room where I could smash as much stuff as I wanted within an hour's time for just $50. She suggested it would help me process some of what I was feeling Yet Jesus responds to such pain in two ways. He says in verse 4, Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are grieving over what they have lost, because they will be comforted. The word comforted here is from the word which is used to describe the Holy Spirit elsewhere in the Gospels. Paracleo. In other words, Jesus Jesus promises encouragement, advocacy, support in the moment of greatest need. Jesus promises, in the only way I can begin to adequately describe it, for God to wrap His arms around each one who is mourning and console them in their loss. This blessing proves that though losses may be great, Jesus says, let me help you know that the loss does not mean that I have abandoned or forgotten you. Jesus says, I am here. God is here. Indeed, the use of paracleo for comfort points to something we will see in a couple of weeks as we conclude our look at grief. And that is that God takes our losses and transfigures them into something good and great if we would but allow Him to. This new creation is not meant to cheapen what we had, but to enable us to reattach ourselves ever more firmly to God. Hence why Jesus also says in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We often look down on this verse as we inhabit a society that thinks the meek are somehow impaired from moving boldly and taking their destiny by the horns. Our society favors. Indeed, our society idolizes the bold and the brash, not the meek and the mild. Yet here Jesus says, the meek win. Why on earth would he make such a statement? Well, when we look at it in the context of loss and grief, meek should be understood as not simply gentle and considerate, But self controlled. How often has someone told you when dealing with a loss to not do anything brash or make big decisions? In other words, they tell you to be self controlled. How often do we achieve that? It's hard. It's very hard, I confess. We feel the immediacy of the loss and we just want to strike back, to feel like we have gained something. In so many ways, this is why we must always be aware of our grief and whether the impacts of disenfranchised grief are playing a role in our thought processes. Our unacknowledged losses quite possibly could have detrimental impacts on other parts of our lives. And so we should ask ourselves, why do I feel the way I do? Why do I feel the need to lash out? And our lashing out does not have to be violent. It can be simply something as simple as thinking we have to win on some point that we simply can't let go of. I often find people who lash out at work or at church on some issue are often doing so as a response to a loss in some area of their life a loss or the impact of the loss, they maybe have not even acknowledged. The losses for the people of Judah kept adding up and adding up and ultimately they exploded in such a way that even the conception of a state of Israel was lost for over 1900 years. How aware of your losses and grief are you today, beloved? And are you in control of what you are feeling? Jesus says, you may think being in control is paradoxical, but in the end you do not lose. You gain everything. Now throughout our look at grief, we have examined the different losses we can experience, whether that is loss of position in community, loss of ability, losses that other people do not think significant or important, loss of someone, everyone acknowledges as significant to us. Losses of our dreams of the future. As we arrive at verse 6, we are confronted with a loss that those listening to Jesus readily felt and understood, which which is lost in translation for us. Jesus states, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The word we term for righteousness here conjures up images of standing before God and personal piety. Our translations have lost something that those listening to Jesus and first reading Matthew, though, would have understood that the word used for righteousness was not restricted to simple personal piety but also means justice. Herein we see another grief that so many around us feel, a grief that results from injustice. To be sure, the Roman oppression that the Jews were experiencing could only be described as injustice. And just because we live in what are considered to be more enlightened times, it does not mean that injustice is unheard of in our society because sadly it still is. We saw it on Friday night as we watched the tape of Tyree Nichols' senseless murder and know that such deaths are sadly far too common in our nation. We see it as people cannot afford the medicines they need to survive. We see it as the pursuit of power is sought more feverishly than the guarantee of educational access is protected. We see it as stronger nations attack weaker ones for no apparent reason other than to declare the fallacy that might beats right. We see it in the denial of basic human dignity as women are relegated to inferior status in societies around the globe and in pay structures here in our own nation. The list of injustices is endless, and yet Jesus tells his hearers on the mountainside and us today that in that justice is not some pie in the sky ideal, but something that should be hungered and thirsted for. In other words, it is something that should be sought. However, he does not stop there. He tells those who are grieving for it because the words for hunger and thirst used here are here describe a condition of abject want that they will be satisfied that they will be filled, that one day they will no longer be grieving because injustice will be vanquished. Jesus reminds them that God is always on the side of justice and the arc of the universe is always bending toward justice. Beloved, part of rethinking grief is to recalibrate our minds to the new realities after loss, which is what Jesus is attempting to do here. But it is also a call for us to recognize that countless millions around us are living in silent, mind-numbing, heartbreaking grief because justice has been and is being denied them. Jesus is calling us to enfranchise this grief by standing beside those who grieve because of injustice and work to bring them justice. Thus Jesus declares, blessed are the pure in heart in other words blessed are those who see things as they really are and are not clouded by the prejudices of this world but see things as God sees them for they shall see God the verse tells us because God is again always at work on the side of the oppressed yet Jesus does not stop there he continues in verse number 9 and says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Peacemakers are ones who heal the divisions that are present in the world, who literally make peace, which requires a reversal of injustice. Jesus recognizes that this is not an easy task. And so he says that you are blessed when you are persecuted for justice's sake. It is the same word as in verse 6 for righteousness. Verse 11 and 12 tell us that doing this is is not going to be easy. And so Jesus yet again reminds us that we are blessed. It is part of our identity. Just as we are the beloved of God, we are blessed by God. Losses matter. Losses should never be overlooked. It is why we must always be aware and concerned about the losses of all, but, beloved, they cannot dictate and define us or our relationship to God. They cannot be allowed to dominate us and dictate what we do. They must be rethought in the terms of Jesus as blessings. Blessings we may not completely understand, but blessings nevertheless, if only because we know that God is near to the brokenhearted and, as Jesus says, is perpetually comforting them. Accordingly with this mindset, we can be salt and light that the remaining verses declare us to be in our text this morning. Salt, something that in ancient times was not simply a flavoring but a preservative that kept things from rotting, that kept things from dying and being of no use. And can't we all agree this morning that the world in which we inhabit is dying and desperately needs preserving light. Something that, as we heard just last month, darkness has never overcome. The world needs to shine. The, the world needs light to shine into the dark places of pain, distress, and injustice. It is what each of us are called to do, and we cannot do it if we allow grief's darkness to dominate us. It is what Jesus is reminding his very grieving society of here on the mountainside. And it is what Matthew wanted his equally grieving hearers to understand first about Jesus. Because when light shines into the darkness, when it declares blessing and not cursing, when it heralds the perpetual presence of God and decries the sense of abandonment, things that the grieving see through our good works of speaking on their behalf and mourning with them in their loss, then can see and give thanks to glorify our Father in heaven. But at first, though, starts with us recognizing that each of us may have many losses, Each of us may exist in a society marked by multiple losses, but our losses are not curses. We are blessed. It may be a humble brag to some, but it's truth. We are blessed. And the question becomes, In a world marked by injustice, in a world marked by pain, in a world marked by distress, in a world marked by misery, in a world marked by want, in a world marked by perpetual hurt, will we meet them in their grief, mourn with them, and move them ever closer to the light? That's not a humble brag. That's just a brag. Because it says that God is faithful. And He is supreme. Let us pray. Lord, we have heard a lot this morning about your blessings. Maybe we just don't feel them, but we want to. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that we would feel them, that your people gathered here inside this sanctuary or your people who are listening at home or later this week as they drive down the road will know that they are blessed and that they are called to go bless those that don't feel that they are a blessing. We are called to turn mourning into dancing. Help us, Lord, in the midst of all of our griefs to see your light, that our light may shine greater. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please note our schedule has been revised as of April 2021. Please join us on Sunday mornings for worship at 10 o'clock in the sanctuary at 108 Trail 1 in Burlington or on Facebook Live. For more information and resources regarding our church, please visit GroveParkChurch.net. And remember, grace abound.